I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of James. So we will once again go to the book of James. It's been a while. Um, glad to get back after last week as we talked about what Scripture has to say about being as a follower of Christ in a society that um, is anti the sexual ethic of Jesus. So now we're going back to James, and uh, we're going to have to do a little bit of, of review, but the, the idea of the book of James is, what does it mean to have wholeheartedness? Uh, that most of our life is spent double-minded, we're conflicted. We have this desire, and then we have another desire, and they conflict with one another. And as believers, we want to follow Jesus Christ, but at the same time we follow Jesus Christ, we struggle with our own will, our self-rule, um, and they will not abide together. They will conflict with one another at every turn. And it's, it's these seasons that we feel that James is addressing, and he's teaching us all along the way how double-mindedness shows itself, how it's being revealed. And we kind of came to a crux in James chapter 4, I believe a, a turning point in the book, where he addresses what does it mean to surrender to Jesus Christ. And from that point on, as we will begin today, we're going to start seeing what does it look like to be wholehearted in our life. One of the main issues is our tongue. James chapter 3, he spent a good portion of that chapter talking about how our tongue reveals our heart. It shapes our heart as well as it shapes the hearts of other people around us. Uh, and so we're constantly influencing one another and ourselves for good and for bad. Um, there was an, an emperor, one of the Roman emperors uh, of the um, European uh, order that uh, you know, the, these guys had four or five languages that they could speak. And so he was trying to figure out what would be the pure language. What would be the language that would be what humanity naturally gravitates to. And so he conducted an experiment with about three to five babies uh, and instructed the caretakers. They are not to speak one word to these babies. Just to watch and see which language they pick up. But to their horror, within one year's time, every single one of these babies that were not spoken to died. There is, as much as we may not like it, there is a dependence that we have on the words of others. It shapes who we are. And as we read in the book of James, we're going to find that we hurt our own heart with our words but the good news is that the word spoken to God and the word spoken from God can give healing to our hearts. Which is why James chapter 4 is so powerful. We were looking at this last time in, in James verse 1. I encourage you to turn your Bibles to that. It talks about here's another, another attitude, another symptom of double-hearted. Do you find yourself in quarrelsome, miserable relationships? Um, you know, one of the tendency is as we look through all the course of miserable relationships, we'll start listing out all the problem people. And we, we have like five, six problem people in our life, but have you ever considered that you might be the common denominator in all those things? 
that it may not just be the people around you, that it could be problems you're bringing to it, our own hearts. And so, as we looked at this uh, last time, one of the things that we looked at in James 4 is that being full of self brings misery into every relationship. Being full of self will bring misery into every relationship. We'll see that in, in verse 1. Miserable relationships will flow from double-mindedness. They'll flow from this. He, he talks about this in verse 2 and 3, how there's this, you, you, you're fighting, quarreling because you're not asking God, but you're asking God and you're not getting it because you've got these passions within you. Verse 4, they're in conflict and they're adulterous, so there's a double-mindedness, but double-mindedness is healed by God's grace. It's healed by God's grace. You see that in verse 6. And God's grace is given to the humble, while God resists those who are full of self. You see that in verse 6 and 7. But God is asking us, warning us to draw near to Him. And as we draw near to Him, you see in verse 8, He will draw near to us. And so we come to verse 8, very powerful. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So, therefore, we are to pursue resting in God's authority. Resting in God's authority, or in other words, humility. Humble yourselves. Don't see yourselves as the one in charge that goes your way. See it as God is the one in charge. Rest in his authority and what he is doing. And as you humble yourself, God will give grace to those who rest in God's authority. Jesus said it this way. Come to to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest to your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you can rest under the authority of who Jesus is, there is a rest that can be found. With that thought in mind, we're going to begin our study with verse 11 and we're going to go all the way through verse 17 and we're going to see now how wholeheartedness starts to impact our speech. When we are humble before God, how will it change our speech patterns? So let's stand as we read this together. If you'll read silently as I read aloud to you. I'm going to begin with verse 10 so you see that connection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
You may be seated. Have you ever had one of those moments you're in conversation with someone and you've had these little frustrations adding up, just accumulating in your head and your brain, and finally you hear a comment, one more expression of that frustration that you've kind of harbored? And in that moment, for whatever reasons, maybe you're tired, maybe you just someone said it for the last time, maybe it was the context, maybe it was a little lack of respect in, in the tone of it, but you just snapped. And your tongue is like just lost connection with your brain, and you are hearing yourself say stuff, and it was going on and on and on. It just rattled and rattled and rattled. And you were hearing yourself say such things that was horrifying to you. But yet there was such satisfaction as you said it. And in that moment when it was all said, there was nothing but silence. Because what could be said? You had just blew up the person. And you just sat there in silence. And then this feeling started coming in again. I can't believe what I just said. This doesn't feel good anymore. This feels miserable. What, is there any way I can pull those words back and put them back in your mouth? Is there anything I can say to make up for what I've said now. And your heart and mind just was frustrated. And you maybe cried out to God and said, God, I'm a broken person. I'm breaking people around me. God, have mercy on me. Have you ever had those thoughts and feelings? Or is that just me? <laughs> this is that scene. This is that type of context that we're talking about here. When our our tongues, our whiplashings we give to other people just only reveal more about us than it does the people around us. It more reveals our own double-mindedness. So with that being said, when it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you, verse 11, the very next thing says is meant to be connected. Humble yourselves. And one of the ways we show humility is that we do not speak evil Against one another, brothers, how we speak toward one another and treat one another reveals our attitude before God. So, let me just share with you as we go into this. We rest, we let our, our speech rest in God's authority by refusing to belittle others. The, the word slander literally means to belittle them, to make them feel less than. It's not necessarily that you're making up stuff. You're perhaps maybe telling the truth. But you know, telling all truth is not love. Do you know that? I mean, if you came up to me and said, that is the ugliest tie I've seen, it may be true. But it's not love, right? Okay, so telling all the truth is not love and so uh when we're talking about belittling someone it's saying maybe i'm bringing up stuff i'm i'm bringing up observations i'm i'm bringing up facts that i'm going to reveal i'm going to share with the intent with the person to make them feel less than to belittle them it says therefore our, uh, when we humble ourselves do not speak 
evil against one another. Or maybe your translation says slander. And then it says judging. Not to judge in this way. Now, I would encourage you, uh, as we read this book of James, read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you will see how James is almost kind of given a commentary to some of what his brother, his half-brother said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to be able to, to say, okay, I'm, he's thinking back in Matthew 5, Matthew 7, when he talks about not judging one another. He says, let me speak into this a little bit and why this is the case, that when we're humble before God, that we are to not speak or belittle one another brothers. Why? Because we're brothers. That we are in Christ as sung for us, clean before God, where our righteous rags are, are made white linen before God, and that we stand together by the grace of God in the same shoes. And we are brothers, and so it is not ours to make people feel less than, and so doing help ourselves out by pushing down the others. And then he goes on and explains. I love this passage of verse 11 and 12 because he doesn't say stop slandering, stop judging. He says, let me tell you what you're doing when you're slandering, when you're belittling. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. And when we say judging, it means to condemn. All right, What is spoken about here is not to think critically. It is not forbidding evaluative thoughts. In fact, in Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, when he says do not judge one another, he says in that same sermon to look at the fruit. In other words, he's saying this is not just evaluating behavior. It is to say I am condemning them. I'm evaluate and I condemn them. So do not judge your brother because when you do so, you're speaking evil against the law. Why? Because it is the law of God that says to love your brother as yourself. To love God by loving your neighbor. And so this is the law of God. And so when we are belittling them, we are encroaching upon what the law says. And so we ourselves say, I don't need the law. I am greater than. The, the law applies to everyone else but me. And so I will take these actions and will condemn them. And I will judge them. And I will belittle them with my mouth. And so doing, you are saying the law does not apply, it is not effective, it is not relevant, you are speaking evil against the law, and judges the law. So you've placed yourself over the law, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. What do you, what's being said here? When you are slandering, when you're belittling people, you are putting yourself in the place of God. Have you ever thought about that? That's why he says... We've got to humble ourselves before God. We rest in the authority of God by our speech, by refusing to belittle others. Because when we belittle others, we put ourselves in God's place. We make ourselves the authority, and we're no longer resting under the authority of God. And that is, that is one of the, the things you've got to understand. When people do bad things against you, speak bad things about you, when they proclaim lies against you, it is still... <laughs> All the more relevant, all the more powerful in that moment to say, I will rest in God's authority and I will not lash out and step outside of God's bounds because under God's authority is the only place of protection for me. And you get tested. 
You get challenged when people speak evil about you. Okay, well, now can I lash out against them? No, because they are still the brother. You are still called to love them. And the law is still the same. God didn't make exceptions there about loving your brother except for when they do these things. So, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, how can we rest in God's authority with our speech here? By remembering a few things. Remember that he gave the law. By the fact that he is the one who gives it. And so when I hear this law saying, do not slander, do not judge, to love your neighbor, it is to say this is God's law and is his authority to give the law. I can't make those laws. Only Jesus can. And so now you remember that he is the one who gave the law. He is the one who judges. He is the only one who knows. He only knows what the just deserves are. Have you ever thought about what you would give to people in punishment for the sins? I mean, I remember when we were growing up, someone gave my, uh, my dad this little machine you put up on your car. And it had great sound effects. So that when you go on the traffic uh, and someone cuts you off or whatever, you could cut this little machine on, press a button, and it would make this machine gun sound. You do this other button and it has this bomb sound. It just blow up. It's like, oh, that one's satisfying. It, it, it was just this way of imagining, okay, oh, if they would just no longer, I mean, who gives them the right to get in my way? I, let me give them the just desserts. Let me blow them up, you know? And we just use that with imagination. We have this little vice, but there's this part of this that says, you know, I, I know what someone deserves. But God is the one who gives the law. He is the one who judges, and he is the one who destroys. He can undo us by right of creation, and he is the one that has the best knowledge of what deserves what. We don't know what deserves what. We go overboard all the time, and we go underboard when it comes to us. Isn't that right? We give ourselves mercy all day long, but we will uh, snip someone off with the of least of transgressions. And so he is the one who is the lawgiver. He is the one who is the judge. He is the one who destroys. And he is the one who is able to save. Aren't you glad? He is the one that is able to do this. So let me just share. How, how do you know when you go down this road? And I think we all know. But just in case you are kind of blind to, to this. A few things to know when you've got this critical judging spirit. One, are they destroyed when you criticize them? Is the person you're talking to just crushed? They feel like they're thrown away. Now, you have to be careful because some people are offended at everything. But you know when you're talking to them, and you can see the expression on the face. And you, you've just crushed their spirit. They're deflated. They're broken. That happens continually around you. 
pretty good sign that there's this judging spirit. Second one is that we tend to have a fault-finding habit of mind. Fault-finding habit of mind. It's what you jump to before you know the facts. You feel like everybody around you are jerks and fools. Is that you? Well, it might be that you are the one. You have the fault-finding habit of mind. You're constantly irritated. You feel superior to the people around you constantly. That's a sign of a judging spirit. Another sign is that you you not only enjoy telling people about their faults, you enjoy hearing about their faults. That is somewhat satisfying. You, You may say, oh, I hate to hear that. But there's another part of you in your head that says, yeah, I always knew they were that kind of sorry, good for nothing type of person. And that just proves it. Just, I knew that was going to happen. It's a a self-satisfied impulse. Self-justifying impulse. These are some signs of of slander, belittling. It's interesting when Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Before he talked about do not judge in Matthew 7. In Matthew 5 he talked about anger. And and anger, he said, uh, you've, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. But I say to you, do not call someone a fool. He, he starts using slander. And he puts slander under the category not of lying, but murder. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus puts slander under the category of murder. Basically what Jesus was saying, that spirit that slanders, that belittles someone, you may be telling the truth, but you're doing it in such a way with the motive of putting them down. That spirit, you give it enough time, and you invest in that attitude enough, it will end in killing someone. It's a difference of degrees. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? Slandering under the category of murder itself. How is it that the Nazis were able to do what they did in killing so many Jews? Could it be that it first started off by saying that these are the nobodies? And they keep saying it enough, these are the nobodies, these are the nobodies. And they give them labels, say these are the nobodies, treat them as nobodies. They start doing exactly that. The slandering. But remember, God is the creator. He's the one who's able to destroy. He is the one able to to judge. We don't have any idea what they deserve. Only God is righteous enough to be the judge. He's the lawgiver. He, he is the law. He didn't make up the why. Why does it say thou shalt not lie? Because God is truth. It flows from his being and who he is. And so he is the one qualified to do that. He's the righteous one. He's the one who's able to save. And therefore, He is the one that can pronounce the sentences of judgment. And in so doing, he can say, Jesus Christ has become sin for you, so that you might be made right with me. He is qualified in doing that. 
Well, we keep on reading. We go to James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year here and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears to be a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Notice verse 17. He connects these things, these ideas with verse 17. And what he's saying, verse 17, this is to do this sin, this, this idea of stepping in God's place, is you don't even have to be intentional. All you have to do is nothing. If you just do nothing in your life, you will get yourself in the place of God. You will see yourself in the place of God. And so when you know what it is to regard God's authority, to not do so is sin. But all you have to do is just wake up and not be conscious of God. It is so ingrained, so easy for us to do. And so how do we rest in God's authority here? Let your plans rest in God's authority. Let your plans rest in God's authority by remembering his control. Remembering is key here. And that's the point. When you see these two uh, hypothetical situations, you see in verse 13, it's like a plan today, tomorrow. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to trade and make a profit. And then verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, do this or that. The difference here is not the planning. God is not forbidding planning. Uh, you see this in Proverbs where he regards planning. You see Jesus referred to this of, of counting the cost before you invest. And, and that there is a, a way for planning and strategic planning at that. And so this is not forbidding strategic planning. But the difference between verse, uh, verse 13 and verse 17 is remembering God's control in our plans. Regarding his authority in our plans. Remembering is glorifying God. And so have you thought about this? What is the opposite of glorifying God? Forgetting. It's forgetting God. And it's the glory of God, the Hebrew word for it means weight. To have weight in your life. And so we, we must be considering the weight of God. And so to forget God, to say it, he is weightless. He is not worth remembering. He's not worth consulting. He's not worth regarding in our plans. I remember uh, when I first seminary, first semester in seminary, it was this kind of a, a transition, a period of quality of work, of what I was used to being a communication major at at Appalachian State to now uh, going at the master's level at Southeastern Seminary. And my very first paper, I, I did this paper, it was this big, in my mind, a huge paper compared to anything else I'd done. And I turned it in and waited for it, had to wait to get it back in the mailbox. It's packed for emails and all that. So uh, I got it in the box and I was just crushed. And the first two pages, it was red everywhere, and it wasn't my writing. It was the professor writing all these grammar errors and, and theological questions and, and just nonsensical statements that he was bringing out that I was writing. I was like, oh, oh. It's, it's like he just, every paragraph had red in it. 
And then the third page, I turned it over and I didn't see it red. I was like, oh, that was good. I turned the fourth page. Wow, two pages without any red. Five pages, six pages, seven pages. Keep on going. I was like, there's no more red. And it dawned on me. Even worse than getting red ink is no ink. All you teachers know. Because it was deemed unworthy to keep reading. And in case I wondered, you made sure I understood at the end. The admonition was, you must do, and you can do better quality work. Welcome to seminary. <laughs> the only thing worse than the red ink is no ink. When we live our life, to not regard God is the greatest of insults in our life. To, to say, uh, to argue with God, to, to have these red inks in our life. So God, God, and we start talking to him. But even worse is to go in day in, day out with God not even regarded or talked to in our life. I was listening to a uh, graduation speech that was done uh, about three years ago by uh, one of the guys, is an, he's an actor, he's one of my preferred actors, uh, Denzel Washington. Uh, he would uh, give his graduation speech at Dillard University in 2015. He says, uh, let me take this moment to first of all wholeheartedly congratulate each and every one of you today. You graduated, you did it, you made it. Congratulations, you did it. You did it all by yourself. Nobody helped you. No, that's not, that, that's not what you know. I thought when I was young, I started to really make it as an actor. I came in, I talked to my mother. I said, Ma, do you think that this is going to happen? I'm being so big and I'll be able to take care of everybody and I can do this and I can do that. And she said, all right, stop it right there. Stop it right there. Stop it right there. It's that if you only knew how many people have been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together for you, how many prayer talks she gave, how many times she splashed me with holy water to save my sorry behind. She said, oh, you did it all by yourself. I'll tell you what you can do by yourself. Go outside and get a mop and bucket and wash them windows. You can do that by yourself, superstar. So I'm saying that to say I want to congratulate all the parents and friends and family and aunties and uncles and grandmothers and grandfathers, teachers and enemies, all the people helped you to get to where you are today. Congratulations to who you are. He goes on and he says, first thing I want to tell you is put God first. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things. Everything I have is by the grace of God. I understand that. It's a gift. He goes on, number two, fail big. Number three, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. And then finally, I pray that you put your slippers away under the bed tonight so that when you wake up in the morning, you have to get on your knees to reach them. And while you're down there, say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. 
So that's how I live my life. That's why where I am today, say thank you in advance. I thought about that. That's pretty good words, are they not? Understand that everything we have, when you wake up each day, it's all by God's grace. That's all that we have. Anything above hell is God's grace given to us. You think about where you are, why you are here today. How many of those things did you actually control? How many controlled where you were born, when you were born, or where you were born? And how three of those factors influence who you are today? When you are born, where you are born, to what parents were you born? There are thousands of things in one day that God has done to enable you to be where you are. God's grace, when you realize that everything is by God's grace, it has a way of humbling the boastful and proud, does it not? To think that you got here by your own measure, by your own resources. No, it is by God's grace it has a humbling effect. Then there's those of us who are depressed, the circumstances in life. And you say it's all by God's grace and has an uplifting effect, doesn't it? Bringing you up to say, yes. Yes, I can live and depend on God's grace to help me. And then there's those of us who are maybe apathetic or complacent. To understand when that statement is said it's all by God's grace, it's to shock us away from presuming upon God and say, God has given to me things that are, will be held accountable by Him and I want to live my life because of God's grace given to me. It has that effect in your life. Why, why is this? Well, remember what he can control. By recognizing that his knowledge is greater. How do we do this? How do we rest in God's authority by remembering his control? Well, as we live our life, remember that God's knowledge is greater than ours. His knowledge is greater than ours. Notice as we read verse 14. Yet, you do not, not know what tomorrow will bring. We got all these plans. We hope, ideas, and goals. But we don't yet know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life for your midst that appears for a little time and then vanishes? So that's like when you go out in those cold mornings and uh, you breathe and you see your air and it just dissipates. So that's your life. In the scheme of things, of God's looking and awareness of who you are, that our life quickly passes. God is constant. He is continual. He is ever-present. And our life in comparison is as that vapor. And so why should we rest in our knowledge when we can rest in the knowledge of God and trust His authority to understand that when life doesn't go how we want it to go, it's okay because there's someone who knows better and He's working on our behalf. He's working in our life. And so there is this idea of just saying, you know what, it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right, and I can think of 10,000 things that seem better, but that's only because I only know what I know. 
God knows things beyond. The fact that matters is we don't even know what we don't know. All we've got is our past and that, a glass dimly that we look at. We just see one perspective as we look in our past. That's the thing we know the best, right? Our past. And we just know one shade, one perspective from the past, often filled with miscommunications. But there is a God who's aware and working. Don't know that he knows more than we. Remembering and recognizing his knowledge is greater. We keep on reading. And also by recognizing that his power upholds all that exists. How, how can we rest in God's authority? Not only in God's knowledge, knowledge, but also in his power to uphold all that exists. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He, he upholds everything that is. There's a, a part of us that we've got to be willing to say, God, sometimes we look back and say, God could have stopped these things. God could have prevented things from happening the way they happened. And yes, he could have because he upholds all that exists. But if we're willing to give God that power, we must also be willing to give God the wisdom, the knowledge to say that maybe he knows some things that you don't and how these things are happening. We want to take God's power and blame him. But what about God's wisdom? Can we rest in that? Can we rest in his love that he's expressed to us through Jesus Christ on the cross? Resting in God's authority is done by knowing that he is in control, that he has wisdom, and that there is a love that is working on our behalf. You remember how we define wisdom? is to see the beauty of God's authority in every circumstance. So too, now... James is applying that here. He says, now when we think about that, when we talk about our plans, we've got to recognize that God is in control of all these things. And so he's not just admonishing us to piously say, if God wills. That's fine. In that you remember that God is in control. But it's not necessarily to say everything you, you say is by putting the fact that God wills it. You can get in trouble that way. Yes, we want to do what's most pleasing to God. We seek that understanding. But we know that God is going to work in how he wants to work. Giving us, at the same time, freedom of choice to make those plans. You notice what he says. He doesn't tell us not to make plans. No. Verse 15. Make the plans, but understand that it's under God's direction. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we, boasting is, is something, kind of a wartime activity, uh, at least on the movies. You know, you, you try to get a group of men and three quarters of them are going to die, so how do you get them to do that? Well, you charge them. You psych each other out. You boast. And then you go on the offensive. He says, look, when we live this way, we're boasting. But we're not boasting just for ourselves. We're boasting against God. And that is a losing battle. So let our boasting be what God does. What he glorifies in. What he loves. And let us live our life 
under his authority and rest in his authority by letting our speech reveal that, that we're not going to belittle one another because God's law still stands and we don't stand above God's law. He is the only lawgiver. He's the only one that can create and destroy. He's the only one that can save. And so we cannot go against God's authority. When it's said and done, we are praying for a heart's desire to live under God's authority in every circumstance. And he gives us the spirit that does exactly that. Will you pray that God would prick your heart when you are stepping outside of his bounds and in God's place? You think God would want to answer that prayer? If you said, God, I want to live under your authority. Would you let me know when I step out by my speech or by my foreplanning outside of your bounds? Would God answer that prayer? Yes. It is his will, as revealed in his word. He longs for you to draw near to God. And as part of it, if you draw near to God, notice what it says in verse 8. He will draw near to you. So let's pray that together.